The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. First John, we're continuing on in First John. Uh, really excited. This book was uh, one of the first books I read when I became a Christian. Uh, the Gospel of John, and then First John. You know, uh, the Gospel of John is really intended for us to know who Christ is. You know, it's gospel evangelization. You know, to help people understand who Jesus is. And then First John is really this book of assurance that we might know that we have eternal life. And so. Just uh, the three themes, uh, John is very cyclical in his thinking. Sometimes it seems like he's scatterbrained, you know, but uh, he he's, has these themes in mind and he's constantly coming back to them, you know, and so these three themes that we're seeing over and over again in the book is that uh, John is really emphasizing what does it mean to love? He, he knows that this is the command that Jesus has given us, that, that we will be known as his disciples by the way that we love one another. And so he is taking us to school in what does it mean for us to be a people that love the Lord and that love one another. And so we see this theme everywhere, all throughout the book of First John. Is, uh, and so he shows it in all of its multifaceted ways, what it looks like for us to love others, what does it look like for us to love the Lord, uh, to receive his love. And so you just, you're going to get bathed in love. All right, uh, and then the second thing is that uh, John is really intending for us to get clarity about what it means for us to follow Jesus. We live in a, a day in a culture where uh, people self-identify. I can identify myself as I see fit, as I choose, and I am the only one that validates that expression. And John, uh, it lived in a day where people would say the same. They would say, well, I can identify myself as a Christian if I want to. And he says, well, there are certain things that, that um, actually reveal whether you're a Christian or not. Here's how you can know that you really are following Jesus rather than following a figment of your imagination, rather than following a Jesus that you've made up that looks and acts just like you. And he, he, so he is intending to bring clarity as to what it looks like, what obedience to his commands look like, who is this Jesus that we really follow. He says he felt him, he heard him, he touched him, that he's not a figment, that he was real, historical, lived, died, buried, was resurrected. And then the third is that he is intending to bring encouragement and assurance about our salvation. So on the one hand, he warns us, and he says, and he, he, he's warning people and saying, are you really a Christian? Where, is your, where, where are you finding your assurance that you're a Christian, that you pray to prayer, that you walk a Nile, that you were raised in a Christian home, that you know Christian people? Where are you drawing your assurance that you really are a follower of Jesus? And John is intending to warn, but he's also intending to encourage us because he's saying, listen, this is where your encouragement is found. This is where your assurance is found, is that you have trusted in Christ, yes, but that you're practically walking in obedience to his commands. And so, and he, he sh- goes forth and shows a litany of, uh, of what that means uh, when we are children of God. So... So hopefully you are encouraged by this, also warned. I find that sometimes uh, when we're talking about assurance that uh, people that should be cautioned are so hardened that they're kind of like, ah, whatever, of course I'm a Christian. Actually, they should be cautioned. And sometimes people are oversensitive. And they actually are genuine believers, but they have such a sensitive conscience that they're constantly being pricked, you know? And so, you know, let God's word get in there and, and let God's word reveal and let it do its work as we go through First John. And hopefully, you know, we would ask that you would join us, that you wouldn't just listen, but that you would actually be reading through this as we go through the book. Um, because your time alone with the Lord is where he does some of his finest work. So, with all that, we are going to be in 1 John 2, 
verses 15 through 17. So we've got uh, a couple verses for today. The title of our uh, sermon is Destructive Love and Affair with the World. Destructive Love and Affair with the World. So 1 John 2, 15 through 17. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But everyone who does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word. So the big idea that I think clarifies and is going to guide us for our time is this. It's that love for the world destroys us. Love for the world destroys us, that it separates us from our love for God, and it traps us in things that are destined to fade and disappoint. It traps us in things that are destined to fade, and it's also they're also destined to disappoint us. So our outline, where we're going to go, is that we're going to talk about spiritual adultery. We're going to talk about its cause, uh, its destiny, and our hope. Its cause, its destiny, and our hope. I'm going to leave out the reason it's going to be in there too. So first, spiritual adultery. So if you read the, if you start, look at verse 15 with me. The first thing he starts out is a warning. He says, do not love. Do not love. That seems odd because isn't the whole book of 1 John about loving? I mean, he's instructing us to love. You know, love God, love other believers. And now he begins this passage by giving us a, a negative command. Don't love. Don't love the world, he says. Now, I think it's really important that we stop here for a second and realize that Christianity is not primarily a list of things that we do and that we don't. Right? Christianity is not primarily a list of commands and you need to follow these commands and don't follow those, you know, and, and, and prohibited from doing these things. Christianity is primarily a relationship. It is a relationship where there is intimacy, where there is love, where there is care. But inside this relationship, there are things that God would call us to avoid, call us to withstain from, because he loves us. So my son Theo is almost six months old, and he is forever going to be the butt of all my sermon illustrations from now on. Um, <laughs> but he, uh, he, just in the last week, is now mobile, you know, scary. Um, because before he was just immobile, you know, wasn't able to do much. He just looked cute and stayed there. And I was like, this is great. You know, this is awesome. Uh, but now he is mobile. And the only way he's mobile is he rolls. So he's figured himself, he's figured out how to, how to roll. He doesn't, he hasn't quite got crawling yet, but he'll just roll himself like a little bowling ball, you know, from place to place. And, uh, and so I was watching him, uh, this, uh, this last week in the morning time and he goes, and I, I kind of get a little bit of daddy time with him. And, uh, and usually I, like put him on the you know on on the floor mat and he's just like there I'm like sweet and but this today he's rolling and so he starts rolling and rolling and rolling and then he gets to the enter entertainment center and he can't roll anymore and he's stuck and I'm like ah success you know he's you, you're gonna you're gonna stick there and then he starts taking his fist and pounding and he gets to the entertainment center you know because that's all he knows to do is flail and so he's flailing and all of a sudden I realize like there are sockets underneath there. Like, there's an electrical socket right underneath there, and he's about to put his hand right into that. And so, of course, I rush and grab him and pull him away. He starts crying, right, because I take away from his, you know, his hitting bag. And, uh, but, but the point of that is that 
there are going to be times where I love him and I have to say no. And I have to pull him away from something that in the moment he thinks is good for him. He thinks is fun. He thinks is joyous. He loves it. Why, though? Because, one, I know better than he does. <laughs> and, two, I love him. And so, too, our Heavenly Father, in this intimate, close relationship that we have with him, he's going to tell us sometimes not to do things, not to love certain things because, one, he knows. He knows far more than we know. He sees things that we aren't able to see. I mean, God is outside of time. He knows our past, present, and our future. God knows what will destroy us. And not only does he know, but he loves us. He genuinely cares. Last week we talked about that God loves us. And what does that mean? What does love mean? It means a passionate commitment for our good and his glory. Right? A passionate commitment to, to his glory and to our good. And that's what it means that he loves us. So therefore, there are going to, become t- there are going to be times where God says, don't do this. And we can choose to, to encounter those commands and throw a fit and get upset like a child and say, God's just trying to withhold these good things from me, rather than realizing, no, God loves you, and he wants better for you than you want for yourself at this point in time. And so, so we see that God warns us because he loves us. He says, do not love the world. What is he, so what's he warning against? What is so dangerous here that God sees the necessity of warning us? Well, he says, do not love the world. Right? Do not love the world. What does he mean by that, the world? I mean, doesn't he say in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life? I mean, is he, you know, is he fickle? He's like, I love the world this day. You know, like, I love you, I love you not. I love you, I love you not. I mean, so what is he talking about here? I think that, one, this is where we have to slow down and we have to understand the context and we have to make sense of what the word is saying. It's so easy for us to take things out of context and to see things that aren't there or to put things in that aren't there. And so we see throughout the Bible that it teaches us that this word cosmos, it's the Greek word for world, that it can mean five different things. First, it can talk about the whole material order. Right, Everything that is created can talk about, and this is including spiritual entities, non-spiritual. It can talk about the whole created order. Second thing is it can talk about the universe, everything that is physically created. Sometimes uh, it talks about, number three, it talks about planet Earth as our physical planet. Number four, um, sometimes as specifically in John 3.16, it talks about the total uh, the, the totality of human inhabitation, the totality of the human populations. God so loves the people in this world. God loves his creation also that he's made, but, but God primarily died so that he would save the people born in his image. And yes, creation is going to be redeemed also. But the, the fifth thing we see, and we see it a couple different times here in First John, we see it in James, we see it throughout the scriptures, but the world means fallen humanity Fallen humanity and its rebellious state against God. Fallen humanity and its rebellious state against God. Now the Bible talks about that evil takes several different forms. And oftentimes we, we simply categorize it in one of those forms and we miss out on its, uh, its attack. You know, that we're in a war. And so the Bible talks about that the, the forms of evil in this world are, one, our, our sinful nature. The Bible talks about it as our flesh. It says that, that we have a, a, a brokenness in us, a bentness. Iniquity is the word that gets at this, and it means this inner perversion. It means that we've gone astray from the inside, and therefore that inner perversion manifests itself in, in sinful actions. 
and this rebellion against God. And so we don't, we're not sinners because we sin, right? We have a sinful nature that brings out and causes is the source of our, our rebellion and our disobedience to God. But then it also says that we have an enemy. And this isn't just a, a fictional character, but we have what's called the Satan, which is the accuser. He's also the deceiver. And he, his purpose, what he does, is that he seeks to, one, to deceive the brethren. He seeks to deceive those that are following Christ. He comes as an angel of light, promising things that he doesn't deliver. And he's also the accuser. And he comes to accuse the brethren, to remind us of our sin, to try to, uh, to hinder our growth in Christ, and to keep people away from him. And so we have... We have our sinful flesh, we have Satan, and we also have what's called the world, right? And what happens when you get a bunch of broken people together? Well, we create broken things. <laughs> and so that's what we see is that the Bible talks about as the world, is it, it, it references um, all these things that we have created that, that manifest our sinfulness, whether it's our political system, and it shows our rebellion against God, that we don't need God, and that we can figure things out on our own terms whether it's our expression of media and we leave God glaringly absent as if there is no afterlife, as if we won't have to give an account to him, whether it's in our workplace. Uh, there's so many different forms of this. You know, and these, these three, they work in tandem. You know, sometimes we just want to blame things on the devil. Sometimes we think it's entirely our brokenness. But you see, these three forms of evil, they work in tandem. Satan uses our broken flesh, and he also uses the world to lure it out, to, to know our weakness. And so we see that all three of these, and in Ephesians 2, it talks about that Satan is the, the god of this world, right? That he, he is over the broken, fallen condition and cultures that we create, and he's in the midst of it, influencing it, helping to guide it, helping to stroke it, and fan it into flame. We see this in Genesis 11. We see kind of the culmination of this is that people have rebelled against God. You, you know, Genesis 3 has happened, the fall, and you see sin spiral, right? I mean, as soon as there, you have two, two brothers and one kills the other, and then it just, sin spreads across the globe. And it gets so bad that God cleanses the earth with a flood, but and then sin continues to spread because it's not simply something that lives inside. And Genesis 11, you have the Tower of Babel, and all these people come together in this fallen culture, and what they do is they say, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to show who we are outside of God. And so they come together and they create this tower that's in, intended to be in rebellion against God, to sh reach up to the heavens, to show that we can be like God. We can be a God. And God comes and, and he scatters them. He scatters their language, scatters their tongue, and scatters the people because of their rebellion. And it shows that that's what broken cultures do. Broken, and all, all cultures are broken in one form or another. You know, sometimes we look at our culture and we think, oh, I'm so glad I'm here. Listen, our culture has its own brokenness. And sometimes you don't see it until you get out of it. You know, sometimes you go over to another culture and it's so evident. Oh my gosh, you know, you, you go to India or you go to some place where there's just, there's physical idols everywhere. And you're like, man, just the idolatry everywhere. But half the time they come over here and they're like, how can you stand the idolatry? Like you, we don't see the brokenness sometimes in our own culture because it's what we swim in. But all cultures are broken. All of it manifests this sinful condition to rebel against God and create gods after our own image. What this really is, is James calls it what it is, this love for the world, this love for culture and for uh, manifestations that rebel against God. Listen, 
there are good aspects of culture that we are to call out, but there are also evil aspects. And so he calls this what it is. It's adultery, this love for the world. James 4, 4 through 5 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Man, this is it's harsh language, isn't it? Sometimes we want to say, well, it's not that bad. Come on, James, lighten up a little bit. And he says, no, you don't understand. You either love one or hate another. You cannot have both. And when you choose to rebel against God and chase after the world, you commit adultery against him. The most intimate relationship that we can have in this world is one of marriage. Why? Well, last week we talked about that in our word for love is... Uh, not very helpful in English. It's kind of a, a bad, uh, because we can use it in all kinds of different ways, even though it, the nuances are different. And we talked about in the Greek that there are four, right? We talked about that phileo is this idea of brotherly love. Eros is passionate love. Storge is this idea of familial love. And agape, divine love. You see, marriage is the one that, that brings all of these ideas together. Right? Is that when we are married, that person becomes our best friend. They become who we're closest to. There, there's passion in that love, eros. Right? There's storge because that person now has become family to us. We are one flesh. And there's also the, the idea of marriage is intended to have this unconditional divine love in it, to show it, to reflect it. And we feel this, right? I mean, people, you feel this when you're in this emotional state. You make promises, I'm going to be with you forever because we have this natural unconditional love because it's intended to reflect God's love for us. And marriage brings us into unison, all of these loves in one. And so it's intended to be this, this deep, passionate love. And we, one of the, the most beautiful expressions the New Testament offers, it says that we are the bride of Christ. That when you come to Jesus, when you place your faith in him, when you say, I no longer am going to trust in myself and my ability to save me and my ability to work out um, and improve myself, but I'm instead going to going to trust in you. I'm going to give you my sin because I can't handle it. I'm going to give you my debt because I can't pay it. There's this miraculous thing that happens is that he takes our debt and he gives us his resume. He gives us his life and that we are now one. And it says that this is a marriage. Right? It's, it's a beautiful thing because all that is his becomes ours. And all that is ours now he takes on to him. And we become mysteriously one, married together. And Marriage is, is good. Marriage is, is intended to be this great thing. But what happens when we, when we cheat? Right? Adultery is one of the most harmful things that a marriage can ever suffer. Right? Because when you, when you choose to cheat on your spouse, that's saying, whether you physically, whether you verbally say it or not, it's saying that you're not enough. You're not worthy, that I found someone better. Right? You're, you're proclaiming all of those things with your actions, and it wounds. It's this break of trust. Now, the Lord can forgive, and, and there's, there's healing in that even within us, even within marriage. God can heal that. But man, it, it causes deep damage, deep wounds, and just the, the emotional turmoil that it brings, the pain. But we don't often think of that this is what we do to God. When we say, God, you're not worthy. Instead, this is what's going to satisfy me. God, I don't you know, I know that you've died for me. I know that you've given me your life, but I can't really, you know, I can't really say no to this. This is going to, this is going to satisfy me. And so, 
he paints this picture and he says that it's serious, that it breaks God's heart, our adultery with the world, our, our choosing of these sinful aspects over him. But what, what is it and why do we do it, right? Because that sounds very abstract. Adultery with the world. Of course, none of us would do that, right? Because it just sounds too abstract. It doesn't sound concrete. And this is where John starts to really flush it out and help us to understand what does it look like for us to have adultery with the world? Why do we do it? Well, he says the big cause is love for the world, right? But then he clarifies, what is love for the world? And he says in verse 16, he says, for all that is in the world. So he's summarizing, everything that is in the world are, is, in, is seen in these three things, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. They are not from the Father, but are from the world. Notice that he talks about, the ESV calls it desires of. And it's this lusting after. We've already talked about that. Our, our sinful nature is perverted, and so it lusts after these things. And these three temptations, they're seen all throughout the Bible. Over and over and over again, we see Satan bringing these temptations and using them to lead astray people. The first one we see it is, we see it in Genesis 3, right? We see Adam and Eve are created. They're put in the garden. There's harmony. There's perfection with, their, with God's creation and with God. And then the serpent comes along, the Satan. He comes and he, he says, surely God didn't tell you, can't, you know, that you, you can eat of all the trees. And, and she says, no, you know, the Lord said that we, uh, we can't eat or even touch of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan says, no, God surely says, you know, when, when you eat of it, you'll be like him. You'll, you'll know good and evil. And it says there in Genesis 3, verses 8 through 9, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, right? Good for food, lust of the flesh. And that it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Notice, based on this, what do we see? We see first the lust of the flesh. And what is the lust of the flesh? The lust of the flesh is something that arises internally. It's this internal longing for, for something. And we see this manifest itself in gluttony, right, here. I mean, that we, we see food and we, we have this internal hunger, desire. And it's not just simply to satisfy our appetite, but it's this gluttonous desire that I have to have this and that what brings meaning is my palate, is that I have to have food that tastes a certain way or else I'm not going to eat it. It's not going to satisfy me. We see it with gluttony. We see it with, uh, with laziness, right? Is that, well, it's, it's more comfortable for me just to lounge around on the couch, for me to watch Netflix, for me to watch Hulu, for me to rent a movie. Or it's, you know, I really don't want to give my all to my employer. I don't really want to work diligently because of the lust of the flesh, because it's more convenient. It's easier for our body. Now, this isn't saying that we don't at times need to take a nap. But it's also saying that sometimes our laziness is due to this lust of the flesh because we have these cravings that our body has and we just yield to them. Some of the also ways is we see it with addiction, whether it's alcoholism, whether it's pills. We see that our body creates this natural longing for things. And once we begin on that route, it, it craves. And it, it, it comes from within. One of the most powerful ways, I think, is we see it with lust. 
Is God created us with sexuality, created us with a desire. But when that lust, when it manifests itself in, in other ways, in, in harmful, broken ways, the Bible teaches that, that sexuality is a beautiful, important, valuable thing. That God loves it, that he created it to be a reflection of him. That it's to be expressed within marriage. Because outside of it, it destroys. It, it, it's like a fire that burns up. And how many lives have I seen that have been ravished because of it? Marriage is broken, lives destroyed, people leaving Christ, wandering. So we see lust of the flesh is something that comes from within. It's these cravings of our natural body. And we see lust of the eyes. And this focuses primarily on external impulses. Right? We see this with jealousy or envy. We look at somebody else and we think, I have to, I have, to have that. I have to have that house, I have to have that car, I have to have that kind of spouse, I have to have that kind of job, I have to have that kind of status. It is primarily something where we look out and, it, and through our eyes, our eyes are some of the most powerful things because they, it, it creates this desire in us through what we watch, what we see. So oftentimes it comes through passive ways of entertainment. You know, we don't really think about what we put in, what we're watching, what we're consuming. And you've, you're kidding yourself if you don't think that what you watch affects how you think and what you believe and how you behave. And so what we put before our eyes, it drastically affects us. And it can conform us to this world. It can change us. And then the last one is the pride of life. And this focuses primarily on status and identity. Right? Pride of life means that I'm seeking to establish myself outside of God that what really defines me isn't God's love for me, isn't my identity as a child of God, but really, what really identifies me is my job. And I have to perform a certain way. If, if I don't perform well at my job, then I feel like I don't have a point in life because that's where my identity is found. Or my identity is found in how well my relationships are going. And so when my relationships start to fall apart or when I have to actually say something that's hard, but it's true, and because I love someone, I will say it, but because it might, it might cause relational tension, I won't. Because I, I have the pride of life. I'm building my identity on something other than Christ. That's where my identity is found. Whether it's a hobby, whether it's your performance in school. I mean, it's so many things. What, the base root of it is it's saying that I need another identity, that my identity in Christ is not sufficient. It's not enough. And therefore, I will establish it in all of these other ways. And it destroys us. We see that these, are, these, are, these three temptations are the same things that, that Satan brought to Jesus. Right, Matthew 4, we read there, and Jesus has just been baptized. And it's interesting, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. Right, you know, the Spirit leads him into that. And so sometimes we think that hard times come, and it's Satan. Sometimes God's leading us into hard times. Sometimes God is leading us into these difficulties because he wants to prune us, because he wants to show his glory and his worth and his value, because that's what Jesus did. I mean, right, even when you read Job, I mean, God is sovereign over all of us, even though Satan is there, and God is doing it that he might display his own worth, his own glory. And so Satan comes after Jesus has been fasting, and he's fasting in preparation. Jesus' fast is in preparation for the spiritual attack he knows is coming. And so, too, sometimes God has us to fast in preparation because it, it, it fortifies us. And so he's fasted, and then Satan comes. And the first thing he tempts us, he says, you must be hungry. <laughs> I mean, 40 days not eating, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'll be hungry. And so he comes and he tempts him. He says, you must be hungry. Why don't you take these stones and turn them into bread? Why don't you satisfy the longing of your flesh? It would be so easy. 
You know, sometimes, most often, Satan doesn't tempt us in these very blunt, very obvious ways because it doesn't work. Oftentimes, it's very subtle. This would be good for you. You, you need food. You need, you need nutrition to keep your body going. Of course, Jesus. And Jesus says, no. You know, the food that satisfies me is to do the will of my Father. I have food that you know nothing of. Jesus will tell him later. And it's to do my Father's will. And so, he talks about... You know, um, the the second thing that he does is he takes him up on the, on the temple pinnacle, and he says, why don't you just throw yourself off, right? And at first you're kind of like, suicide? That doesn't seem like a great temptation, you know? But he's he's intending to do that because he's, he knows. He says, the angels, they will come and bear you up, for you will not you will not harm yourself. The Father will protect you. And what he's doing in that is he's he's helping, he's saying, Jesus, why don't you just reveal yourself? Why don't you show everybody who you really are? Because, I mean, you throw yourself off a temple mount and all of a sudden you see some angels come down and rescue you. It's gonna be pretty obvious, some you know, who you are. And so he's saying, Why don't you just go ahead and reveal your identity? Why don't you show who you are? You don't have to go through the pain. You don't have to go through the ridicule. You can just show yourself. The Pharisees will be quiet, they won't bother you anymore. Well, Jesus realizes that this attempt is for him to establish his identity on his own terms rather than on God's terms. Satan is saying, why don't you establish your identity independent from the Father? Show, show people that you can do what you want when you want it. And Jesus says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Third test is he, he takes Jesus on a high mountain and he shows him the glory of the world. He shows him all the beauty that this world has to offer, all of its wealth. And he says, all of this has been given to my care for now. I'll give all of this to you if you will but bow down and worship me. And he says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God only, and him shall you serve. Notice it's really interesting because he he connotes worship with service. And he says that you will serve what you worship, and worship is service. And so too, sometimes we look out and, and the question is, what do you serve? What are you worshiping? And you can see sometimes what you're worshiping by what you serve. What do you give yourself to? Your time, your energy, your talents reveals what you, what you serve. So we see that these are, these are concrete ways that the world, the world offers these things to us in spades all, all the time. Why is it that we don't choose this? Why, how do we say no to the offer of adultery that the world offers? Is it beckons us. It says, this is better. Choose this. Well, one of the ways that we choose against it is we realize that it's destined to fade and perish. Have you ever, you know, I don't know, if you were a kid, you know, I, we would build uh, uh, a house of cards, you know? Like, we were just really, you know, you'd be bored out of a cabin someplace. There's nothing better to do. So you decide, you know, like, all right, we're going to see who can build the biggest stack of cards. And usually it's a point of futility because if you have, you know, one person that's a jerk in the group, they're just going to keep knocking it down, you know, like laughing. And that's the point is that as you try to build a stack of cards, right, it's ultimately vanity because it's going to, it's going to blow over. It's going to fade. It's nearly impossible to build. And this is what John says. It's like trying to pursue the world is that it is, it's vanity. All it takes is one, one strong breeze and it all blows over. All it takes is one health scare all it takes is one employment, is one death, and everything is gone. You realize how, how transitory it all is, how futile it is. And Solomon, I think, teaches us this. You know, 
if we want to learn from anybody, we should learn from the people that have gone to the umpteenth degree. And so Solomon, it, he in Ecclesiastes says, I'm going to put to the test all of these things. Right? He, he was given wisdom and he had the resources. You know, I mean, he, was, he had the ability to pursue all of these things. And so he says, you know, I'm going to test my heart. You know, lust of the flesh. He goes and Solomon satisfies every appetite you could think of. He had the biggest parties. I mean, 10,000 people, 15,000 people. I mean, he's killing, you know, like whole herds of cattle. And so he's had the best of steak. I mean, he's had, you know, I mean, he's had all the food that you can imagine. Not only that, but he, he satisfied every sexual appetite that he wanted. 700 wives, 300 concubines. I mean, he had every sexual imagination. I mean, he had fulfilled. Comfort, ease. I mean, he's a king. He spent time in luxury, laying back, doing nothing, being massaged, pampered. After all that, he, he says it's vanity. He says it. he felt empty inside. It didn't satisfy the inner longings of his heart, but instead it became like chasing the wind. You feel like you finally got it, and then it slips. You finally It's like sand. You finally got it, and just to see it start to fade through your fingers. He says, okay, you know, he goes into the lust of the eyes. And he, anything that he looked at, he wanted. You talk about wealth. I mean, he had gold. I mean, I think it was in Bible study we talked about the estimates. It was perhaps $2 trillion. I mean, anything that he looked at, he wanted, as far as the size of his house, the furniture that he had. He, if he looked at anything, it was his. And then you look at the pride of life. I mean, he sought to establish his identity. He built whole forests. I know the garden in your backyard is pretty cool. You know, I mean, guy, he builds whole forests. He, he brought prosperity to his country on a level that wasn't seen before in all of Israel. He brought peace. He advanced his kingdom's purposes. I mean, politically, he was a stud. But at the end of the day, he says, all of this is lacking. All of this is, is empty. And sometimes you and I, we deceive ourselves because we don't have the ability to go to that degree. And we just think, if I had a little bit more, then I would be satisfied. Take it from someone who took it to the fullest degree that it can be taken. A little bit more will never satisfy. It will always be a little bit more that you can have. And so Jesus, I think, nails this perfectly. Luke 9, 23, it says, And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And so notice Jesus says that by chasing the world, you lose your soul. He says, but if you say, God, I want you and I will lose the world, he says that you gain far more than you could ever lose. And this is the same conclusion that Solomon comes up with. Ecclesiastes 11.13, it says, after he has concluded, if you read Ecclesiastes, the whole matter, he's gone through all of, the, all of the pursuits. He says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the end of the matter. Fear God, pursue him. He is worthy why, why is it that we don't love the world? One, because it disappoints. It will always disappoint you. It will never satisfy. And two, because it perishes. It is destined to fade. Don't make a bad investment. Don't be, don't be dumb. 
Invest where you're going to get the best return. Invest where it's going to last the longest. And that's in Christ. As it says later on, it says, I'm going to read it. It says, And the world is passing along with his eyes, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Abides forever. I want to give my life where it's going to last, where it's going to make the greatest impact. And that is by choosing to love the Lord. It's by choosing to put him first, to honor his purposes in this world. And this is, this is our hope, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but after reading this, after thinking about this, I think all of us would say that there are times where we have we've loved the world, or we've chased after the world rather than God, or we've put the world and its desires ahead of God and his desires for us. And so what's our hope if we are adulterers, if we are people that run, run astray, how do, we, how do we come back? What's our hope for this? I think it's, there's a story in the Old Testament um, that God tells about his people Israel. Because we're not alone. We follow a long line of parents who have done the same thing. And so Israel was an adulterous people. They, whenever times got hard, they would leave God and they would run after whatever circumstances they thought would bring better prosperity to them, whether it was another nation, whether it was another God. They said, well, peace out. You know, like we're in hard times, so we're going to do whatever we think promises us uh, the soonest, you know, return or a change of circumstances. And and God, through his prophet Hosea, he gives them an illustration. He tells Hosea, I want you to go and I want you to marry a woman of of whoredom, a, a prostitute. I want you to marry her, and I want you to be faithful to her. And so Hosea goes, and he marries this woman named Gomer. And he knows her past, he knows her history, and he marries her. He takes her into his home. He loves her, he's faithful to her, he has children with her. And throughout this time, they've been married, and she continues, and she cheats on him. She runs astray, and it gets so bad that she has now hoard herself into a pimp. And she is now owned again. And God calls Hosea to go and to buy back his wife and to pay the price that he would bring her back into his home and to love her and to care for her. And he says, this is what I, this is what I will do to Israel, even though, they, even though they cheat on me, even though they leave me, yet I will love them, yet I will, I will bring them back to me. And this is our hope. Notice Notice what it starts with in verse 15. It's such an interesting, you have to read it slowly to kind of catch it. But it says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father. You would think it would say love for the Father, right? Love for the Father is not in him, right? He doesn't love the Father. But notice that's not what it says. It says the love of the Father. Who possesses the love that wouldn't be not in us? The Father does. The Father is the one that possesses the love. He owns the love that we are showing that is not in us if we are not, if we're loving the world. And it's so interesting because our hope, our hope is not in our ability to love God. Our hope is in God's ability to love us. That God loves us with an everlasting love, with a permanent love. And his love, if, if we receive it, that is the question because in the Bible, there's a direct correlation between receiving, truly believing and receiving God's love and our ability to show God's love and reflect God's love. And so the question before us is, have you really received and do you really believe that God knows your sin and that he loves you? Because if you believe this, 
than the love of God, the, God, the love that God possesses. Because we don't have the strength. I don't know about you, but I lack the strength to love God as I ought to. I'm constantly failing in it. And I see it in my life. I see my own brokenness, how quick I am to look and to see other things. But when I believe and receive God's love, his love is strong and his love abides in us and it will empower us to love him in return. And so that's the, that's our hope. I hope you see that. Is that the hope that you have in your life is God's love for you? That God's love is not going to quit on you? It's not going to leave you where you're at, but God's love is going to rescue you. It's going to change you. It's going to envelop you and overwhelm you in your life. And so the, uh, the application as we, as we close in prayers, what are you passionately committed to? What do you love? Right? What, what do you love? Because it's providing this alternate. You can either love the world or you can love the Father. What are you, what are you passionately committed to? And think about that in your life. What are you committed to? Time. Where does your time go? Right? I mean, think about your weeknights. What are you committed to? Some of us are more committed to our TV shows than we are our church family. We, we would not miss this episode or we would not miss, you know, this movie, but we would gladly miss out on being in fellowship with other believers. Some of us are, you know, we're, you know, we're more committed to whether it's making a, making money. We're more committed to a hobby you know, we're more passionately committed to, to work than we are. Listen, work's good. Getting rest, relaxation, even having entertainment, they're not bad things. But when you're more, when we are more passionately committed to those things, when we would rather give our time to those things rather than being passionately committed about the things of the Lord, than what He would call us to, and and here's how we fight. Here's how I fight: is actually experience, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Don't you? I mean, don't you realize? Like, I mean, <laughs> He is so much better than what the world offers. The world lies. It, 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 it makes promises that it can't keep. And as soon as you begin to taste it, you begin to see it's hollow, that it's empty. It has a bitter taste at the end. But man, once you, once you see and taste the Lord's good, I know that those who went on the mission trip, they see that, right? I mean, you're going to spend money. You're going to go give a week. You're going to work in hard labor in the sun. You know, like, I mean, a lot of us would say, well, I'd rather just go take a week and, you know, like, and just kind of, I don't know, veg out. But there's, can I tell you, I mean, I've seen this in my own experience. There's so much more joy and more life in giving ourselves to the Lord and to his work. And, and practically what this looks like is that all of us are missionaries. Every single one of us is a missionary and our neighborhood is a mission field. That's what we've been doing with our whole Blessed series is that it looks like being in prayer, choosing to say, you know what's better for me? You know what's better for my neighborhood? Is it better that I actually take time and genuinely pray for the people around me? And it's so much better. Yeah, getting to see that this last week, our neighbor, I, I've shared this, but he's had so much going on. I mean, he's, and please pray for, man, pray for Chris. He's, man, such an awesome, awesome friend, but he's had so much going on. And just praying for him, just loving him, he started to come to life group, you know? And, and as we just love the people around us, God changes, God works in them. But choosing, man, we're going to pray for you. We're going to learn to listen. We're going to invite people that are radically different from us into our home. We're going to open up our table. We're going, to, we're going to do dinner with them. We're going to learn to listen to them and realize that God's going to change them, not me. We're going to serve people. We're going to share our story. All of these things. We can be, let us be passionately committed to these things because these are the things that are going to last. 
These are the things that are going to go on to eternity is people, is people and giving ourselves for them. And so I hope that you see maybe the Lord's convicted you. I know that I know the Lord is constantly convicting me about things in areas where I, you know, I love the world over the Lord. And he's constantly at times calling me to give up those things in order that I would remember that he is first. He is my first love. And so that's my challenge for you as we, you know, close in prayer just and, and we come back up to worship. Just uh, ask the Lord, what is it that you're in love with in the world that he wants to wean you of? What is it that he wants to, he wants to cleanse your life of in order that he might make more room for something that is far better? We have life groups that are going to be starting up in, in September. You know, we have so many opportunities to serve. And, and not just here at the church. We don't want you just to simply come and just serve at the church. We want you to serve in your neighborhoods. Ask the Lord. He'll bring opportunities for you to serve other people. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you love us. And that it's your love that changes us. It's, it's your strong love that actually will teach us to love you in return. And so help us to see that you're more beautiful, you're more worthy, Lord, than anything in this world. Forgive us in the ways in which we, in which we choose lesser things over you. Help us to see uh, the, the ways that we're deceived and bring clarity to that, Lord, that we would walk in faithfulness to you. We love you. It's in your prayer. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.